All right, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 23. Title to our message this morning is Satan's Devices to Divide the People of God. And as we're turning there, please remember what the scripture says about itself that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Exodus chapter 5. Starting in verse 10. So the taskmasters and the four men of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. Taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters has set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name... He has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we come to hear your word now, that you would cause us to be like newborn infants. That we would long for the pure spiritual milk of your word, that we may grow up into salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. So, dear congregation, you know that it's been our practice at this church for years now to preach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and this morning's passage is simply the next passage in the exposition of Exodus. 
So I did not pick this passage this morning at all. It is by God's good providence that we are here. Um, It's by his sovereignty that we would be in this exact passage on this exact morning. And my plea is simply that we would listen very carefully together. That we would do what the Apostle Paul said, that we would receive the word not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. So let's begin. So last week we saw that Pharaoh was a type of the unconverted Man, the unregenerate man, the man that's in rebellion to God. That's how Paul presents Pharaoh in Romans 9, 17 as a type of the unregenerate. But this week, we're going to see Pharaoh as a type of Satan, as a representation of Satan. We've seen in previous weeks how Egypt itself was called the dragon state, Isaiah 51, 9. We also see elsewhere in Scripture that Pharaoh himself is called the dragon. In Ezekiel 32, 2, the Lord says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. So Pharaoh is also a dragon. But who is the great dragon? Satan. Revelation 12, 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So Pharaoh in this book is both a type of the unregenerate man and he's a type of the devil. And again, this is why the whole Exodus account is a paradigm, a foreshadowing of the gospel. Israel's slavery represents our slavery to sin. Egypt represents the world in rebellion to God. Pharaoh represents Satan, the chief adversary. And Moses represents the Lord Jesus Christ who sets his people free. So in our passage this morning, we get to view another chapter in our great redemption. And what we discover is one of Satan's favorite tactics to abuse the people of God, which is divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.11 says that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. KGV says that we are not ignorant of Satan's devices, meaning his plots, his machinations, his strategies. Satan's devices are the particular way that he wages spiritual warfare against us. And one of Satan's favorite devices is to to try to destroy our union that we have with one another by turning members against leaders. And this is precisely what we see Pharaoh doing in our passage this morning. Pharaoh's plot is not merely to make Israel's labor harder. His evil machination is to turn the hearts of Israel against their leaders, against Aaron and Moses. So let's get to it. Here's our big idea this morning. One of Satan's favorite devices is to divide the people of God by turning them against their leaders. So let's look first of all at our doctrine this morning. 
Now recall last time that Moses and Aaron had their first encounter with Pharaoh, and right off the bat in verse 1, they say, thus says the Lord, let my people go, and then the battle is immediately enjoined. Pharaoh denies this request, and he cruelly orders his taskmasters not to give them straw anymore for the making of bricks. They will now have to gather it themselves. So picking up in verse 10, we see that this message is now delivered. Verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Now, notice the formula is set right side by side. Thus says the Lord, and now thus says Pharaoh. There's no doubt about it that Pharaoh is claiming divine authority over Israel. Look at verse 11. This is what the Egyptian taskmasters and Israel's foremen said to the slaves. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. Now, maybe as an aside, uh, from a purely economic point of view, Pharaoh is actually adopting a very terrible economic policy here. Um, All economies are interdependent. That means that each stage of production depends upon the production of others. And that is what causes true advancement and prosperity in any given society. So think about how houses are built. Uh, Everyone involved in the building of a house is a specialist. So you have engineers and architects and designers and electricians and plumbers and carpenters and roofers and framers and painters. And that's not even to mention the industries that take that raw material out of the ground and then make it ready for these specialists to do their work. If one person is responsible for everything, then no houses would ever get built. Economies depend upon specialists. So ironically here, Pharaoh is adopting a policy um, that is ruinous to his own nation. And, and the lesson here is that this is the way of the nations that follow the Lord. They, they actually adopt economic policies that, that ruin and cripple their nation. Look at verse 12. Here, here's the result. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. Instead of actually finding straw, they find stubble, which is chaff, which is the the mere crumbs and remnants of straw. That's what they had to build their bricks with. Nonetheless, verse 13 says, The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. So imagine at this point, Goshen is just in a frenzy, people running to and fro. They're, they're less productive than they were before, not only because of the added workload, but because of the, the pending punishment of not getting their work done. Verse 14, And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmaster had set over them, were beaten. And were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday? 
as in the past. So Israel's foremen were beaten for a job that was impossible to complete. But we should not conclude from this that Pharaoh is somehow a dummy. He did not give this order because he's like, oh yeah, I forgot you. You, you can't do more than one thing. The punishment of these foremen getting beaten was part of his design. It was part of his plan. It was his plot. Pharaoh required the impossible so that they would fail because he wanted to beat them. He wanted to shed their blood. Why? Well, not merely because he was cruel. He had a specific design in this beating. Verse 15, then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? Now, who, who is Israel crying out to here? Are they crying out to Yahweh? Are they praying to Yahweh? No, they're bringing their plea to Pharaoh. Whose servants do they say they are? Do they claim that they're servants of, of Yahweh? No, they say, we're your servants. Why are you treating us like this? You see, this is why their belief, back in chapter 4, verse 31, should have been called into question. When their faith is actually being tested... They turn to the God of Egypt for help, not to Yahweh. So they pick up their plea to Pharaoh in verse 16. They say, look, no straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Now this is precisely what um, these beatings were meant to produce. This particular conversation, and in this conversation, the question of fault is raised. Whose fault is this? Who is at fault for this impossible labor requirement? Who is at fault for the Hebrew foreman getting beaten? And the foremen say, it's your fault. It's the Egyptians' fault. But Pharaoh turns it right around. They, they step right into the trap. In verse 17, Pharaoh says, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. And right here, we just need to ask a question. Was it the foreman? who went to Pharaoh and said, let us go sacrifice? Was it them who said that? No, it was Moses and Aaron. Pharaoh was saying the fault lies with Moses and Aaron. It was Moses and Aaron's fault that your labor quota doubled. It was Moses and Aaron's fault that the beatings began. And it's Moses and Aaron's fault that your beatings are going to continue. Verse 19, the foremen of the people of Israel saw 
that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. And as they came out from Pharaoh, they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So these four men essentially call down a divine curse on Moses and Aaron saying, the Lord punish you. And this is not without irony because these are the very Israelites who disbelieved Yahweh's word. And now they're calling on Yahweh who they disbelieved to punish Moses and Aaron. So to sum up, in one single conversation, Pharaoh convinced Israel that his word, thus says Pharaoh, was, was more powerful than thus says the Lord. And he convinced Israel that the real fault for their suffering lied with the very leaders who delivered that word. And so then we arrive at our doctrine this morning. One of Satan's favorite devices is to divide the people of God by turning them against their leaders. What Pharaoh did is what Satan does in every single age. Consider three proofs for this. Proof number one is Korah's rebellion. Proof number one is Korah's rebellion. Please turn with me to number 16. This is only one of the many times that the people turned against Moses in the wilderness. Numbers chapter 16 Now Korah, verse 1, now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men, They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now this was a a massive effort. There were things happening behind the scenes before this meeting even took place because they gathered... uh, Uh, near 300 men. And they wanted to remove Moses from leadership, put themselves in his place. And this was not a small quibble. In verse 13, they accuse Moses of taking them out into the wilderness only to kill them. Now, in the end, we know what happened. God swallowed them up in an earthquake. He opened up the ground underneath them. Why? Because he tells them that it wasn't Moses that you are despising. It was God himself in verse 30. Now, what's behind Korah's rebellion? Who was whispering in Korah's ears? Well, it was Satan. In the book of Jude, um, Jude tells us that Korah's rebellion is a type of those who follow after the devil. 
uh, Jude 1, 8 through 11. So, so Korah listened to Satan's whisperings, and he turned against the Lord. Proof number two, the super-apostles. The super-apostles. Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 6. Here is why we see Paul had such a tumultuous relationship with the Corinthian assembly. Look at verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Do you see here that Satan was at work in the Corinthian assembly, specifically through the work of these uh, false teachers? Look at verse 5. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. True believers were being turned against Paul by Satan through the activity of these false apostles. Proof number three, the Judaizers. The Judaizers. Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. It's not just Members who turn against their leaders, it's leaders who turn against their leaders. Here we see that even apostles, uh, Peter and Barnabas, were turned against Paul through satanic activity. Picking up in verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him. To his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Now, the the good news is, is that both Peter and Barnabas had recovered from this um, defection. But don't miss the point. It's it's Satan's activity that caused this defection. Um, Who did the circumcision party work for? Jesus tells us in John 8, 41, that the circumcision party did the work of the devil. And Paul was such a target of this satanic divisive attack that at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, this is what he said in 2 Timothy 1.15. He says that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Now this satanic device has actually been used throughout church history time and time and time again. You guys know that the great reformer John Calvin was fired from his church in Geneva and expelled from the city in 1538 when the spirit of Pharaoh turned his people against him over differences because of the Lord's Supper. 
Same thing happened with Jonathan Edwards, that great awakening pastor in 1750. He, he pastored the church in Northampton for 24 years, and then his church fired him. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, 1899 to 1981, once responded uh, to a room full of ministers who were commenting on the, 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 the nature of this warfare, the, the loneliness that accompanies it. He says, quote, you speak of loneliness? I am the loneliest man in this room. Greatest preacher of the 20th century. Dr. Joel Beakey was... Uh, deposed, defrocked from his former congregation in 1993 because of his view on the free offer of the gospel. Uh, 20 years into John MacArthur's ministry, this would have been in the 80s, um, his elders met with him and told him that his preaching wasn't relevant enough and that the debate of the evening elders meeting became whether they were going to keep him on as their preaching pastor. We could go on and on. Uh, this is what Satan always does. And, and children, boys and girls, you've actually experienced this very thing, but perhaps you didn't know it. When I was a, a little boy and my, my parents would discipline me with a spanking, I would go into my room and I would just be, I would be so angry. I would, be, I would be uncontrollable and unconsolable, and I would hear those whisperings in my heart. It's, it's your parents' fault. They hate you. They don't love you. And I would get worked up, and it took me a long time to realize that that was not my voice. Boys and girls, has that happened to you? See, Satan doesn't just want to, to divide... Um, members from church leaders, he wants to divide everybody from their leadership, including you from your loving parents. This is always what he's doing. Always. So that's our doctrine, that one of Satan's favorite devices is to divide the people of God by turning them against their leaders. So let's look then at our duty. Our first duty is just to be able to anticipate when Satan most uses this device. When does Satan use this? When does he pull this weapon out? When should we expect this particular type of spiritual warfare? Well, when does Pharaoh try to divide the people? In our passage. When the word of the Lord invades the world. Um. The moment, thus says Yahweh, was spoken in verse 1, Pharaoh began to divide and conquer. Joel Beakey says here, quote, The kingdom of darkness never rages so fiercely as when the word invades the world. Didn't that list of names shock you? Moses, um, Paul, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, Joel Beakey, John MacArthur. What do these men have in common? They faithfully confronted the darkness of the word with the, the world with the word of God. 
Dear congregation, if, if the word of God is being faithfully preached and taught, then we should expect satanic spiritual attack, an attack that begins to divide. Our second duty is to answer um, some objections. Someone might say, but aren't you putting too much blame on Satan? Doesn't our sinful nature contribute to this problem of divisiveness? Why Satan? Well, of course our sinful nature contributes, but, but here's the question. Who is fanning into flames that sinful nature? There are multiple ways the New Testament speaks about Satan inflaming our sinful nature. Matthew 4, 5 through 6, Satan misquotes the word of God to persuade us to sin. Acts 5 through 3, he fills hearts with greed and pretense. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, he tempts married couples in the bedroom. 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11, he prejudices the church to not forgive repentant sinners. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, he disguises himself as an angel of light so that what he says sounds right. 1 Timothy 3, 6, he seeks to puff us up and fill us with conceit. Ephesians 6, 16, he insinuates thoughts into our minds so that we think they are our thoughts. And there's so much more. Paul said that we need to put on the whole armor of God so that we can be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the devices of the devil. One of those schemes is that often what the devil does is he labors to hide things from our eyes. Perhaps you've read the book uh, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is channeling the demon Screwtape. This is what he says in one of the letters. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out of their minds. In other words, many times what the devil does is he makes us forget the good things and he causes us to focus on um, the deficiencies. This is precisely what happened to Paul in the Corinthian assembly. Did did the Corinthians remember that Paul was their spiritual father, 1 Corinthians 4.15? Did the Corinthians remember that Paul endured countless beatings in bringing them the gospel, 2 Corinthians 11.23? Did they remember that he performed signs and wonders among them, 2 Corinthians 12.12? No, they didn't remember any of those things. Do you know what the Corinthians remembered? That he was unskilled in speaking. 2 Corinthians 11.6. That he wasn't as eloquent as the sophists. Puritan Thomas Brooks says here, It is sad to consider that saints should have so many eyes to behold one another's infirmities and not one eye to see each other's graces. Loved ones, beware of Satan's trickery. 
He often blinds us from the good graces of each other, and he amplifies the faults that we have. But someone might say, Christians can't be used by the devil. Um, Only non-believers can be used by the devil. Well, that's not Jesus' theology. You know what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Uh, you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If, if, if Satan can influence the apostle Peter, how much more in danger are of we of being influenced? That's a, uh, um, this is why James said, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. So our, our third duty then is just to examine ourselves. Dear congregation, are you aware of this divide and conquer strategy? Do you know it exists? Have you ever fallen prey to believing Pharaoh's accusations against those who are leading you? Are you aware that he attacks most when thus says the Lord is being faithfully proclaimed? Have you ever been given over to a critical spirit, uh, picking apart everything that you see your leaders doing? Have you ever forgotten their graces and, and focused all of your attention on their deficiencies? Have you ever let trials and sufferings blind you to who the real enemy is? So our our, our fourth duty then is to to rebuke ourselves. And first, to to church members who have fallen prey to this device. So so listen carefully. If, If you are this person, if the shoe fits, then apply the rebuke. If you have listened to Pharaoh, If you're harboring angst against anyone in leadership and you haven't gone to them in the spirit of humility and and reconciliation, then you need to rebuke yourself. The, The Israelites sinfully accused Moses and Aaron. Don't you realize what would have happened if if these Israelites got their own way? They would have remained in slavery. That's all that listening to Pharaoh can bring you is just more slavery, slavery to bitterness. If your leaders are declaring to you the, the word of God, though they have many flaws, then they are laboring for your freedom. It's true that freedom will include trials and suffering and risks, but that is what... Uh, The apostle told us that we should expect when we're leaving Egypt. He says in Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So don't struggle against those who are leading you, serving you. Apostle says in Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, obey and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account Rebelling against godly leadership is the very thing that Satan wants us to do. 
Second, to those church leaders who are tempted to respond like Moses did. Look how Moses responds when the foremen point their finger at him. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, we need to, be, we need to pay close attention to his speech patterns here. It's clear that Moses believed that God was sovereign. Uh, he wasn't doubting God's sovereignty. Look at verse 22. He says, why have you done this? So he he didn't forget that God was sovereign, but he blames God anyway. So if he wasn't doubting God's sovereignty, what was he doubting? He was doubting God's heart. God, this can't be your good plan. Did you send me to suffer? Did you want your people to suffer? So, dear leadership at this church, elders and deacons, like Moses God has called us to lead. And we, we, we need to rebuke ourselves if we thought that this would be an easy calling. As leaders, we are told to wage the good warfare. 1 Timothy 1.18, we're told to share in the suffering of a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.3. Dear leaders, church life is war. It's war. And when we received our calling, when we came up here and we took our vows, and when the elders laid their hands upon us, we acknowledged that hardships would be part of the ministry. Will we, like Moses, doubt the goodness of God? Stand fast, brothers. More trials are coming, more suffering is coming. God did promise that he will part the Red Sea, but he also said that Pharaoh was intending to give us hell on the way out. And that's part of the ministry life. So those are our duties. Dear congregation, number one, we must learn to anticipate when Satan uses this device the most, namely when thus says the Lord is preached. Number two, We must expect that Satan is always at work in dividing, either through accusation or forgetfulness. Number three, we must examine ourselves to see if we have fallen prey to this. And number four, we must rebuke ourselves and repent if we have. So let's look then at our delight. Where is Jesus in this passage? Where's the gospel? We saw Israel. We saw how Israel responded. What did they do? They blamed Moses. We saw how Moses responded. What did he do? He blamed the Lord. How did the Lord respond? If you were the Lord, how would have you responded in this passage? 
How do you respond if you have a loved one, a family member, bring accusation and blame against you? Especially if all that you've done for them is given them love and kindness and patience. I mean, what has the Lord done for Moses thus far in this account? Well, let's, let's look at the Lord's side of the ledger. He miraculously saved Moses from eat, being eaten by crocodiles at birth, Exodus 2.5. He gave him a home in the palace and an e- Egyptian education, Acts 7.22. He gave him a wife and children when he fled to Midian, Exodus 2.21 and 22. That's pretty good so far. Then in Exodus 3, the Son of God showed up to him in the burning bush. Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate God, spoke to him face to face. And then Yahweh promised to deliver Egypt through him. And then when Moses didn't believe, Yahweh performed miracles for him to help him believe. And then Yahweh spared his life when he wantonly disobeyed. And then Yahweh sent Aaron to help him. And what happens when God doesn't deliver on Moses' timetable? What happens when Pharaoh hardens his heart just like God said he would? Moses accuses the Lord. Now, how would we expect the Lord to respond with that side of the ledger versus Moses's? How dare you? Who do you think you are? That is not how the Lord responds at all. He doesn't even hint at rebuke. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out. Of his land. The Lord answers Moses not with rebuke, but with a promise of salvation. Do you you see the gospel now? Number one, the Lord furnished Moses with life and breath and all things. Number two, Moses paid him back with sin. And number three, the Lord bore the blame and promised salvation. Oh, loved ones, how many blessings has the Lord poured out on you and upon me? And how have we so often repaid him? We've repaid him with blame and accusation, with doubt and fear and unbelief, with believing the lies of Satan, with blaming our leaders, with loving slavery more than freedom by quarreling with one another. And how has the Lord repaid us? How has the Lord repaid us? Not according to one sin. He does not repay us according to our iniquities, nor deal with us according to our sins. What has he done with all of these accusations and this blame that we've heaped up on him? 
the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what does he promise us? After the ledgers are compared, that in spite of it all, in spite of our cheating on him with idols, in spite of our conspiring with his enemies, in spite of our selfishly serving ourselves, he promises still to deliver us with his strong hand. Still. After the kind of people that we have been, he still promises that he will deliver us, that he will save us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. Dear friends, this is the promise of the gospel. That we have failed countless times, even after he brought us into his family. Though we deserve to be cast out, that the the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the merit of Christ, the intercession of Christ covers every last sin to the uttermost. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the world. He's the propitiation for your sins. He atoned for every last one of them. He he absorbed the wrath of God for all that you have done. Not just from before you were a Christian, but since you've been a Christian. Jesus is God's strong hand. And he bore the blame when no one else would. So here's our charge this morning. Let us not be ignorant of Satan's devices. We need to remember that this is always what he is doing. He's never in neutral. He will use trials, he will use sufferings to make lies seem plausible. But resist the devil and he will flee from you. Satan didn't die for your sins. Satan doesn't offer his body and his blood to be your everlasting food. He wants to devour you. But Christ offers himself as your everlasting food and your everlasting drink. And contrary to all expectation, it was his good pleasure to receive us as his children. It was his good pleasure to receive us into his home. Though we fail him, though we forsake him, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that not only do we see what Satan is up to in the world today, but we see what your son has done about it. That where blame is pushed from Satan to leadership to you, you bore the blame in the person of your son. Lord, help us to run to Jesus now at the Lord's Supper. Prepare our hearts, Lord, to receive this good drink and this good food. 